questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. The late Timothy Leary said, Extraterrestrial intelligence could have sent out DNA seed packets through space to plant life on hospitable planets such as Earth. Tonight, we explore evidence for the theory of directed panspermia, that life on Earth and the landscape of Earth itself was engineered by extraterrestrials. Could Earth have been terraformed through a sophisticated geoengineering program? Also, how the extraterrestrial agency behind the origin of civilization is still working behind the scenes today. This advanced ET civilization is not an alien race in the way we normally think of quote-unquote aliens. They are our ancestors, and as humans as we are. Greetings, I'm your host, Mal Fabregas at Veritas Radio. And to listen to tonight's full interview and all our material, past, present, and future, all you have to do is subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. And to tell us more, tonight's special guest is Will Hart, a writer and photojournalist who has been investigating UFOs and history's mysteries since 1968. He has appeared on many TV shows and many international magazines. He is the author of The Genesis Race. His latest book is titled Ancient Alien Ancestors, Advanced Technologies That Terraformed Our World. Will Hart joins us directly from northern Mexico. Hello, Will, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Well, thank you, Mel. Uh, I'm happy to be on here with you, and we're going to have a good uh, show here. Yeah, first of all, you just came back from Japan, and before we began, you said that, before we dive into your work, did you have any discoveries while in Japan? Well, yes, I did. Uh, Japan is kind of closed mouth about uh, a lot of their artifacts, and that's one of the reasons I went, because they have some astounding very strange artifacts, unlike any others in the world. And I'm talking about one called Ishino Hoden, which basically means stone, or they also call it uh, uh, the flying stone, because it's above, a, it's a 500 ton block. It's a solid monolithic block of stone, and, but it sits above, it looks like it's floating above water. There's a pond below it. And Nobody knows who created it. Uh, archaeologists have no idea. There's no record of it. Uh, it's just an astonishing uh, artifact, inexplicable as to how it could be moved, how it could have been carved. Uh, it's not a tomb. There's no uh, hollow interior. It's solid, like I said. I saw the That's image, what? Will. I saw the image. What's uh, the illusion? As you said, it looks like if it's floating, but what's keeping it the way it is. Well, there's actually a neck, you know, they cut the bottom, right? And there's a, there's a neck that's, that's connected below it, but you can't see that. And so it, it does give the impression that it's, it's floating. Uh, to me, you know, the, the strange, and you run into this a lot with different sites, especially these uh, rock cut sites, whether they're caves or something like this. Uh, there's no waste rock anywhere. And you're, you're looking at tons and tons of rock, but it's not found anywhere. There's no piled up rock. Uh, and that was, that was one site. It's fairly near Nara, which is the old capital of Japan. 
and there's a lot of Kofun. And I went mainly to see the Kofun, but happened to get more information about that particular site there. Um, and I like the sites where we're not like everybody's bogged down in Egypt. Uh, Egypt's kind of old hat because Egyptologists control it. Uh, the Egyptian government controls the site. Who has access? Who doesn't? If you step out of line, they will, you know, they will just cut your permit, your license to do anything. It's very political. Uh, there's there's many other sites around the world that are equally interesting. And I think more so because you can actually go and and there aren't these politically oriented archaeologists and historians who stick to their guns. Um, Japanese government and archaeologists do not make any claims about it at all, that that they know who did it or how it was done or anything. And that puts us on on an equal footing. Now, when it comes to Japan, I'm always curious. I know a lot of people there are very curious about the UFO phenomena. What's your impression? And then we'll talk about Mexico, too, since you're there, too. How do you compare the, not the ufologists, but the people who are interested in the subject? How do you compare the Japanese, uh, Asians in particular, to the ones here in the United States and maybe even Europe? I I think the uh, Asian people in general, and that's a huge statement, uh, are more open-minded. they just they just kind of stick it. It's not like they you know just accept it, but they they're open minded about listening to it. They don't ridicule and dismiss it out of hand like people a lot of people do in the West. Um, in fact, uh, most of the people I was with there were professors at different universities, and and one of them told me took me aside. I'd read, read part of my book and said I was very interested in this part on UFOs because I had my own sighting years ago, and he explained a bit about what happened. And uh, Matt told me that, and he's a he's a history professor. Um, people are just have an open mind, and I think the same is is true in China as well. Um, really, America is the most locked up, has has a mental lock on it uh, on some of these subjects, especially UFOs. Um, you know that Mexico doesn't. Mexico is pretty open about it. Yeah, but in, in, yeah, in let's let's stay with Asia for a moment here. Because I'm interested in the in the way the government deals with these topics. We sure. know how the United States deals with the topics. They just ridicule. They just, once in a while, they plant a seed that goes nowhere. And as you said, you know, Mexico, I remember I wrote a letter once. You remember the sighting from the Mexican Air Force with the, in the Bay of Campeche. I actually wrote exactly. a letter to the Secretary of Defense, and I was scheduled to have an interview with the deputy. Secretary of Defense back in 2008, I believe it was, and right. it was a brigadier general. And an hour before the interview, they abruptly canceled. But he wrote me a letter stating that they could not confirm or deny what it was, which was okay. very intriguing to me. But in, in Japan, how do, you, how do you find the government? What's the reception when it comes to these topics? I Well... In general, let me explain the kind of use the Kofun as an example. Uh, the Kofun, the Kiho Kofun are these huge sites and the strangest, I think it's a huge anomaly in this whole field. Some of these sites are more than twice as big as the Great Pyramid base. I mean, they're absolutely huge. Uh, they go on, you know, the site will go on for uh, more than a quarter of a mile. 
and it's a keyhole shape, and it goes up maybe 50 to 100 feet vertically. Um, and inside, there'll be a tomb, or what they call a tomb. Now, here's the interesting thing about it. Very few people in the world know about these things, and there are 150,000 of them throughout Japan. That's astonishing. Now, what are they? Can you describe them? Yeah, it's a keyhole shape. Um, I, I post them a lot on my uh, on my Facebook page. I just envision a keyhole shape on the, you know, a round top and then uh, a flared out um, trapezoid below it, right? Just a keyhole shape. Only it'll, it rises up vertically, maybe a 50 to 100 feet up in the air. It's, it's a very large complex and surrounding it will be a moat and the moat can be anywhere from 20 or 30 feet wide to 50 or 60 feet wide the largest ones now here's the fascinating part about it the royal family owns the keyhole kofun nobody can get in them including archaeologists that's how tight-lipped japan is on some of these mysteries that they feel belong to their country UFOs is a different matter, but this Kofun is what intrigued me because well, I just studied them and I, I kept looking. Why don't alternative uh, historians and archaeologists, so-called, why aren't they looking into this? It's very little known. By the way, this is new to me, and I thought that I had researched a lot. This is new to me. I'm looking at Google Images, and I just type Keyhole Kofun Japan, and what? I, geez, what is the purpose of these things? Well, they claim that they were tombs, and you know how that goes. Um, they have very little real information. The problem with Japan's history is it goes back about 2,000, a little less than 2,000 years. There were no records at all before then, no writing, nothing. And the records are even then are sketchy. And they, you know, Japanese archaeologists and historians attributed the Kofun to their ancestors who were there in Japan, but it looks that looks a little questionable because they're so tight about the security. Uh, they don't let any archaeologists try to get have tried for many years to get into them and they can't, they opened up a few and that's all. Um, so that's, that's why I went and what I was really digging into. But what surprised me is when I got there and I had a guide and, and we started off for the one I wanted to see Every couple of minutes, he was pointing another one out. We were just driving through the countryside, and he's going, well, there's one there, and it's, it's overgrown. You can see it there. And then another one, and another one, and another one. It's just astounding that people don't know about these things. And Japan's done a very good job in keeping the lid on it. Oh, well, they don't very promote good job. Them. Very good you job, because I, no, I had no idea until you just mentioned this a minute ago. And I'm looking at some of them. Some of them seem to be buried. They almost look like semi, you know, almost like a pyramid. But some of them are like separated with a water around it, like a lake, right? That's right. right. Noel well, has a moat. You okay. Know, there are moats just, to, yeah, there are moats surrounding them. So we're talking about a lot of engineering was involved. People don't think about these things, but if, if you're trying to attribute it to some primitive uh tribe back then that built these to be tombs, they did an awful lot of engineering, and they moved an awful lot of earth and stones around. But why it's such uh, a big tomb? I mean, this, these, these things are yes, that's, huge. Yeah, and that's, very, that's a very good question. 
why so massively overbuilt like the Great Pyramid is, you know, uh, to be a tomb. It's, uh, and I think that part of the answer to our questions comes, we can kind of infer from the way they're protected uh, by the royal family and the government. Uh, there's just some real mysteries there that so far nobody's been able to penetrate. Uh, and I'm trying to, uh, but I just did the first stage. This trip was kind of the first foray, you know, to get, get my feet on the ground there and try to use some. But even 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 my resources there, the people that I know were pretty guarded about it. In fact, he said, because I had written and given him my book, uh, when I got over there, he had said before I came, well, we'll talk about it when you get here. But he never talked about it. We never had that conversation. So that kind of gives you an idea of uh, it would be sort of like talking to, you know, a professor of history in the U.S. about UFOs and just kind of skirt around the subject. Well, it's almost like talking to Sahih Hawaz, Dr. Sahih Hawaz in Egypt and about certain things. And he he goes ballistic. But in this case, Japan, if you were to talk to, I don't know what the equivalent of the Ministry of, of History or Architecture or what have you, or culture, if you were to ask them, what would they say about these things? They would say that they were built by, uh, the history is there, were, there was a group or a tribe, an early Japanese tribe, and but these came right on top when they, when, when they had kind of gone through their whole Stone Age. Suddenly these start appearing about 300 AD is what they claim. And from for about 400 years, um, the new Japanese, the, the leaders, and so on, were were having these built, supposedly. Now I don't I don't see how they can date them, but uh, that's the dates they give us. Um, they never address how, never address the technology issue, never address the knowledge issues, um, which I find in almost all ancient mysterious sites. That's the case. I'm looking here. I'm looking here at some of these images from the air, and some of these kofuns or keyholes. They're surrounded by almost twenty blocks of buildings. That's That's how massive this thing is. Yeah, and they are huge. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Now, and I know you're you're surprised that you didn't know about these before. Very surprised. These are not insignificant things, you know, hidden away in the landscape. In Japan, they are huge. And they occupy many, many, many square blocks and dwarf everything else around them. And nobody's talking about them over there or, you know, in the rest of the world. And they've just done a very good job of shutting the door on it. And some of these that I'm looking at, there are two that are massive. There are two that are smaller ones, but they're almost perpendicular. The sizes are exactly the same. And if they were made a couple of hundreds, you know, A.D., how in the world were they able to, well, again, we can start wondering how the pyramids were created, too, and we'll discuss that later. But this brings me to the Chinese. This is totally something that I didn't expect to discuss with you, by the way. This is a surprise to me. But the Chinese pyramids, have you heard? I'm sure you have heard of the Chinese pyramids, too, right? Sure, yeah. These Chinese ones, many of them are, as you know, completely covered in vegetation. I believe that the government 
pays the farmers to farm on top of them to keep the secret because apparently they have dug and they have found some mummies, preserved mummies of red-headed people. And I guess they don't want any other but the culture to be the one that was in that area. Your take on that? Basically, yeah, that's that's what we find everywhere now. Um, there's nationalism going on. Mostly this, this ancient history, the, the controversies get back to, you know, whether the indigenous people that we know of now, let's take the Inca, for instance, uh, built the early sites like Sacsayhuaman or, you know, Puma Punca or whatever, um, or who did if they didn't. And they can never claim they did, right? And the Egyptians, actually, there's nowhere in any papyrus document that where the Egyptians describe building the pyramids. They never claimed that either. It was attributed later. So we kind of run into the same thing where our modern historians are using politics to concoct this this story, basically. Um and then, then they will use it against people like us who question things and say, well, what are you saying? Are you, are you some kind of a racist? You don't yeah. believe these? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's their latest thing, you know. You're, you're claiming these people couldn't build those things? Yeah, I am claiming no people built them. <laughs> Not any race uh, built these things because they're too, they were too advanced for the time. Uh, we couldn't, you know, most of the things, the really large things in Egypt and up to 700 tons, we don't have a mobile crane that could lift that right now, let alone. And to say that people did it, it's so absurd, it's preposterous. But when archaeologists stand behind it because it's a political stance and they just, you know, point the finger and ridicule people like us who question. And it seems to work, although I think it's coming apart at the seams or it's starting to. But there's the other side, too, Will. Many people say, well... If it was not us, because even today, with today's technology, we can't even replicate one of these structures. So right. a lot of people say, then it must have been extraterrestrials that came in and they, they had to have done it. But my yeah. theory, I, I, I'm not sure if you're going to agree with me, but I believe that like the Dogon, they get really upset if you tell them that it was extraterrestrials because they say, why do you continue taking credit away from the ancestors. What if we had a race of humans who lived there, who maybe have spoken the same language? They have probably were in contact with one another around the world, and that's why we see all these all of a sudden structures like the pyramids showing up more or less at the same time. Why couldn't it be that it was us back then and perhaps something happened, a cataclysm, a flood, something that made those people migrate somewhere else, and perhaps a lot of people perished, and the knowledge to build them faded away, almost as if it something were to happen today, and a hundred years on the road, you and I were walking around, we're the survivors, and we dig from the ground some iPhones or some computers, and we have no idea what they are. And we say, well, extraterrestrials must have made them. Yeah, um, we're talking about theories, you know. I mean, the uh, ancient alien uh, ideas are, are a theory. We can't, you know, we don't have definitive smoking gun proof, and nobody does. You know, Graham Hancock promotes uh, the lost civilization theory, which is kind of what you were saying. Um, yeah, it, it's, I guess all we can do is, you know, through the, the various uh, pieces, try to put the puzzle together and see what fits best. Um, 
just from the evidence. I take it, I look at Sumeria, I look at the ancient texts along with the artifacts, you have to. Well, the Sumerians said they didn't do it, you know, that they, that the Anunnaki gods did this stuff, brought them the knowledge, the tools, and so on. So I go by that. I look at the Bible. Bible says, you know, these uh, Elohim also gods came down and did this and this and this. Well, almost everywhere that I look is the same story in early history. I mean, the Aztecs said the same thing about Teotihuacan. The gods built the city. It's, so the question gets to be, who are the gods? Who were the, the gods? Yeah. Uh, were they real, substantial, physical beings who came down here from another world? Whether And I don't happen to think I, the, the problem with it, and I subscribe to the theory, a kind of a, a hybrid between directed panspermia and uh, ancient astronauts. They couldn't have been uh, way out in space because we're already finding, in fact, we've already found that we're not going to get very far out into space unless we change technology. They either were very close in our system or very close, or they they figured out a wormhole means of travel or something, because the hardware approach that we have, we're not getting out of the solar system. So they would have run into the same problem. So it gets complicated. Now, lost civilization, the problem is, here's here's what you got to look at, right? How high, how advanced, and what I want to see alternative folks do, and I think we're getting there, start to nail down how advanced some of this technology was that was required to build some of these things. In other words, the Great Pyramid. The Japanese tried to replicate it. They built to make in Egypt. They were allowed repeat, to, repeat and they that? were given... I uh, lost you for five seconds. Yeah, the Japanese, a Japanese team, serious team, was funded by Nissan in the 1970s to go show people how the Great Pyramid was built. They uh, they got all, you know, they, they got ready, and Egyptologists told them what to do, how they thought it was done, and they went out to replicate it. They failed at every stage, completely failed at every stage, and had to bring modern technology in. The finished pyramid, even though they, they had to bring trucks, they, they hauled the, the blocks of stone, they had to have helicopters help them to position the stones, even despite all of that, they could not align the pyramid in the end to put a, a decent apex on it that uh, that was aligned. Um, that pyramid was torn down after they built it. I have one picture of it, one picture of the finished pyramid they built. You cannot find, there used to be references to the, the stories in the newspapers. I cannot find them anymore. They're not, not even on the Internet. Why do you think that is, that so, they're erasing history? Yes, definitely. But that's been going on, you know, that's been going on for a very, the Romans erased history. Alexander the Great erased history. Cultures have done that time immemorial. This, we're doing it now. This, this culture is doing it. Trying to replace ancient history with this very simplified version of history that doesn't go back very well, far. Well, for many reasons. Right there where you are in Mexico. I spent a few years down there in southern Mexico, too, and I go to northern Mexico all the time. A lot of these cathedrals and big churches, as you know, they're built on top of Mayan temples. And you wonder, why is right. that? Well, because they want the 
the population to forget about their past. And the question is, why? Why do they want to forget the past? It seems to be the, the impulse of uh, empire builders. And that's just what they did. They want to just destroy what existed before, replace it with who they are. You know, they don't, they don't want diversity. And uh, you're right. That's one of the first things I noticed when I came down here in the 70s and went all over Mexico. You know, I realized all, the, all of these churches are sitting right on top of, of the sacred sites for, you know, for a very good reason. Like you just said, that's why they just replaced it all. Burned all the Mayan codices uh, and forced everybody into Catholicism. But that's, like I said, that's been going on for a very long time, and it's sad. It's because we, we, a lot of people sit here and go, I don't understand. Why don't we know about our ancient history? How did it get lost? Well, if you study it, you'll realize it. You won't like it, but you're going to realize what happened. It's been destroyed. Look at most of the ancient sites around the world. They're badly damaged. Sometimes it was natural disasters, but a lot of times it was one culture destroying the works of another. Yeah, it happens all the time. I had this conversation the other day with somebody else. We were talking about the Buddha statues in Afghanistan when the Taliban came and just blew them right. apart. And they have been there for, God knows, thousands of years. And in the right, future, exactly. it makes you wonder if we'll, re you know, how much of our true history will we know in 100 years? Yeah, exactly. Not that much. And it'll be, you know, it'll be manicured. It'll be what they put together and sculpt. Uh, you know, it is politics in the end. That's why I tell people, it's not what you think. They, they try to get you to think we're debating, you know, uh, scientific issues. No, they're not debating anything scientific and they won't because I've challenged the archaeologists and historians repeatedly. They will not debate on scientific terms. It's all politics. They'll just throw mud at us. We're, you know, pseudo-archaeologists, pseudo-this or that, and laugh and tinfoil hats, but they will not sit down across the table and have a real debate. Well, because we've read their, we've, we've read their curriculum, and we understand that they're just staying within one box. But as you said, in the future, we won't know what our true history is. It's going to be worse than now, because right now, at least, we still have some kind of access to books from the past. I was discussing that yesterday, a magazine from Florida from 1902 that had some incredible revelations that I've never heard of before. You can't find that anywhere. But in the future, when they ban, and this will be happening in the very near future, they will ban any printed material, books. You know, they're going to say, we need to save the trees. And I get that. But what they're going to do, they're going to make sure that they have editing power for any book, your book, the one that I am holding right here, Ancient Alien Ancestors. I can read all the pages. In the future, I don't think your book will be printed. It will be electronically there. And if somebody up there, the powers that want to be, decide that, oh, chapter four, that's a little bit uh, too much. Let's delete it. Future generations won't even know what you wrote, Will. Yeah, and we're in that, we're in that boat right now, you know, vis-a-vis -vis what happened in the ancient past. And we know it. We have a narrative that was given to us that is so full of holes and so ridiculous. That... But here's the thing, and I, I posted it the other day. Somebody had asked me, and I said, the problem is with historians and archaeologists, they never suspected 
that average people would get involved in these topics the way they are, would be that interested and passionate about it. That's why some of this stuff is so tacky. They just, it was their turf, you know, and in their papers that they circulated around in the academic community, they never thought this stuff would get outside. But then Von Donneken came along, pointed to all these sites nobody would ever heard of 50 years ago, and it took off. And here we are. So now they're, they're just kind of a damage control. That's that's the best I so can do. So the title of your new you book, know, and, Ancient Alien Ancestors, Advanced Technologies That Terraformed Our World, is this a sequel to your other book titled The Genesis Race? And if so, what is your thesis? What are you proving with this new work? And for those who may not know who you are, with your other work, what did you want to prove with that one as well? Well, I wanted to lay groundwork then, and I'd done a lot of the research, uh, you know, late last century, kind of put it together right around the turn of the century, and then it was published in 2003. What I was saying really was that rather than say ancient astronaut, I wanted to to synthesize. And the Genesis race to me is, is the synthesis, you know, just a race that is out there, extraterrestrial race on another planet, uh, who came to who came to Earth, uh, as our ancient texts say, and schooled mankind. Um, but before they did that, they actually, and I did not put that in the first volume. That's like what you're saying. This one is a, is a follow-up. Um, they seeded life on Earth. And that's where directed panspermia comes in, and that's why I, I refer to that, because You've got to get life here on the planet, and most people don't realize we have physicists who claim that they know everything. They don't know diddly about biology, and that's what's important to most people, living things. Physicists are just addressing inanimate matter, you know, energy, matter, space, time, so on. Uh, They don't address biology, so I'm talking about there is no viable theory that's generally accepted of how life emerged on the planet. And Darwinism doesn't work to explain that. Um, so that's why uh, Francis Crick and Leslie Orgel, a biochemist, uh, uh, microbiologist and biochemist, came up with the theory of directed panspermia as at least a working theory of how life got here on Earth. And they claimed that it was uh, an advanced civilization from out there sent life to Earth. And you'd have to read their paper is online. You can read it. It's not all. It's a little bit technical, but it's readable. So basically, I wanted to put these things together. I wanted to integrate them and not just, you know, Eric Von Donneken's done great work. But it's mostly his work is mostly in culture, um, artifacts, um, texts and so on and at least early on he wasn't addressing science much um, in my work I tried I bring a lot of scientific topics in DNA uh, you know compare the, the genetics of uh, apes versus humans and so on and how we differ because all of all of this has to you know, we're we're in a very revolutionary period here psychologically. Before you, before you continue I mean, with that, really... uh, let me ask you this. I hate to interrupt you, but I don't want to lose that Go thought. Ahead. No, well, that's fine. You mentioned no, any time. Thank you. Mean. You mentioned Darwin. 
Whenever I hear Darwin, of course, we think of evolution, we think of uh, natural selection, yeah. all that good stuff. But I'm yet to find a scientist who can prove to me that there is in the fossil record a human in transition. If they say we came from apes, then why do we still have apes? Why didn't the apes evolve? And they have their theories that they always just put out there to the people who are not scientists like me. But then show me. Show me that it's not plaster. Show me something in a museum that's real. Not something that you are... Well, they don't. Whatever you see in a museum is not even real. That's probably a mixture of ape bones right. and human bones. Right. But show me a fossil with a human in transition. Never do we see one. No, they don't have it because they don't have it. And even the top paleontologists from last century spent their whole careers looking all over the world for these transitional species, right? Admitted, at the end of their careers, they never found them. So that's why they came up with, you know, the add-on to Darwinism, which is punctuated equilibrium, very abstract-sounding thing. That just means the stuff is not in the record. Somehow it gets here all of a sudden. The new species just get here, and they're not in, you know, there's no transitional species between them. Well, that's why I say... Yeah, that's because they're out there, and they they come they hit the planet, and and get going when the time is right, and that's because you can't find it. I I raised that issue years ago with the bees and uh, insects. You can't find a transitional species between the primitive trees and the flowering trees, or or flies and pollinators. I mean, there's so much organic machinery that's there. But there's, like you're just saying, there's no transitional species anywhere. They can't show you one. So it's just much more complex than they want us to believe, you know. And for some, at this point, though, we're really stuck. And I can sense that you get this too, you know, because Science is holding the same positions that people have refuted for decades now. They will not budge. And this offends so a lot of people. This offends a lot of people, especially I have these conversations with religious and, and, and atheists all the time, both of them. And I say, you know, for the questions that can be answered, we have science. For the questions that cannot be answered, we have religion or organized religion, rather, and they're both having a, they both have a common denominator. They have become very dogmatic. And you can't question them. If you question them, you're either a heretic or you are somebody that didn't go to school like they did. That's right. Yeah, they're, they just hold us as outsiders. Anyone that uh, dares to think independently, uh, you're supposed to have a certain pedigree behind you, which means what? That you basically accept their theories and, and parrot them back to them, which uh, independent thinkers just don't do. And I won't do it, but it, it, it does get uh, galling that when you point things out that are obvious, that can be tested, uh, and they won't do it, it's almost like the, if the public doesn't really get engaged and demand things, we're just going to go sideways with this. And I think it actually means in the not too distant future that science is, is just going to disengage from the rest of society. It's just going to be its own little, you know, high priest cast. 
Uh, that's exactly what they are. Kind of that's started. exactly what they are. They're almost like a priest cast, and you can't even look at them in, in the eye. They behave like demigods sometimes. But now with the advent of a technology like ground-penetrating radar, why aren't we flying above these keyholes or above a lot of other places? I mean, they allegedly supposedly found this empty area inside of the pyramid. You probably heard that a couple of weeks ago. Right. Um well, they they are doing it, but a lot of results don't come out, or they exactly. take a lot. Look at look at Gobleki Tepe. You know, they've actually known about that site since the early '90s, but it's only in recent years that the general public is even hearing about it, and most people still don't know what it is and why it's so important. Um, that forced them to change the timeline, which was huge. You know, timeline of civilization. Now it's pushed back ten thousand years from what it was you know, 10, eight to 10,000 years. Um, th these things are going on, you know, these kind of disclosures go on, but you have to pay attention to them. And most of the public is not, they have their lives. They're not, you know, following all this stuff. Um, and I kind of understand that, but it's too important, you know, our ancient past and who we are, because you really get down to, we're either super monkeys or we're from some higher order of, human beings were part of a, a tree that has many branches and were one branch or were these super monkeys who just popped up on this planet is the scientific version people are going to have to decide with uh Gobleki tepe it's six thousand years predating stonehenge but you see everybody wanted to travel to england and right. let's go see stonehenge but this is one of the oldest things ever, ever to be discovered. And could it be that we don't have that much information because in actuality, it could have been Armenian Mesopotamia. The name Gobleki Tepe is actually Turkish, but it's actually Portasar, which is Armenian, and that was created by the Armenians. And again, nationalism has taken place, taken over now, and they don't yes. want people to dig in and find out, well, actually, it's not the Turks, it was the Armenians. Yeah, that, that site has, uh, it's interesting, and people look at the T-shaped the pillars and things, but when you look at the artifacts, when you examine the artifacts that have been found, they are very strange. I mean, mind-boggling strange. When I point them out to people, uh, I post a lot every day, and people are just blown away, and I don't, I don't think most folks get it. I mean, they, we, we were given these images about the Stone Age, and yet the, the the statues that were created at that site way back 10, 12,000 years ago look nothing like this Stone Age. I mean, it's a, a completely, you know, shaven head guy with what looks like a uniform on with a V-shaped neck. Uh, and other things that are equally as curious. And that's a site, too. How do you explain it? Where, where were the tools that created these things? They had to have some pretty good tools to do all that sculpture work. Um, why did they bury the site? Um, there's so many enigmatic questions that, that go into this thing. Uh, and we have these sites all over the world. You know, they just found this one in China, too. Not the same kind of dating, but completely changed China's view of their past. Uh, with very, very odd bronze, uh, alien-looking sculptures, massive sculptures of heads. So, you know, these things are coming up all the time. It's just trying to put them all together and then get them to people quick enough 
to where they can incorporate and realize that historians, I'm not exaggerating, they are running scared now. They have no clue. And their their timeline got busted open, and to them that was that was sacrosanct. And now it's just kind of a free for all. And uh, good, good. All those guys should be doing is finding things. I think you said it best. And then you said it best. We have been going sideways, and I'm sure you detected my frustration too, because we're not going anywhere lately. Yeah, we have Gobleki Tepe Day, and we have all these places, but we're not moving forward as to more information about it. And when you go to academia and you try to find somebody like you or uh, Michael Cremo going to Russia and all of a sudden they get canceled at the university and then they take their presentation somewhere else and then all of a sudden they get 10 times more of the people because they wonder if it was canceled at the university, it must be really good and let's go there. So <laughs> people are... They're kind of backfired exactly. on the people that are trying to... So we are right. trying to shatter the paradigm. We're trying to, to, to rebuild the Library of Alexandria and I'm sure places like the Vatican vaults, they must have a lot of our history buried there so that we don't know our true identity because if we b learn our true identity... We're going to learn the secret to our own potential. That, to me, is the biggest conspiracy of all. Yeah, that, in the end, I agree. That That is the most important thing. Uh, it's not talked about that much while we're going through all of these uh, artifacts and cultures and civilizations, but it's in the end, it's what, the human identity. What is it? And that's what I was trying to say earlier. Super monkey or some kind of a spiritual consciousness uh, that's, in the cosmos, that we're just part of this whole thing. Um, yeah, I agree. That That is the most significant thing. Now, you brought up the Vatican. Let me, let me add one thing here, because you're going to find this interesting. St. Peter's Square is a keyhole. Pull up an aerial view of St. Peter's Square, and you're going to see the same keyhole shape. I see it. I'm on top of it. You're right. Yeah, that... Now, we're getting to, this is a level of planetary mystery that has hardly even been scratched at yet. It's very, it's very deep down, and uh, most people just don't know about this, you know, that even, even the Vatican and even Washington, D.C. Has, has a similar to what the Vatican has, and people have not been told anything about it. The Vatican never talks about this. Um, because we're dealing with things on a totally different level. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that I have a whole lot of answers right now. I just, I just see it. I, I've seen it and I've studied it. What's your take on, because I'm looking at this keyhole in St. Peter's Square, and I'm looking at the, the Earth Cross and, you know, the Galactic Cross and so on. And we've heard that the Southern Cross up in our sky and all the Egyptian hieroglyphs and materials and artifacts that they have at the Vatican. And the late Dolores Cannon told me that one time when she went to the Vatican, she was, there was this, this a tour guide that apparently knew more than the rest and said, Hey, I'll take you to places that people have not seen that much. So they went to different places inside of the Vatican and she was dumbfounded because she said, why do we have so many Egyptian artifacts here? What does that have to do with Christianity? And the man said, oh, you right. don't know. Well, all of Christianity is derived from Egyptology. 
We just needed to change it in a way that it was more digestible, digestible to the people, the peasants, if you will. So all these, the, 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 right. what else do we have there in front of the, 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 uh, the Vatican? What we have in Washington, the, what do you call it? The, uh, gosh, yeah, the big stick. I can't believe that, that, that it's escaping my mind. What, what we have in Washington, too, and we have it in Paris, and we have it at the Vatican. Oh, the, the obelisk. The obelisk. Yes. Those are yeah. all Egyptian, exactly. Egyptian artifacts. Why do we have them there and in big cities around the world? Is there, why? Well, yeah, I mean, you're kind of hitting on it that Washington, D.C. just has nothing to do with anything that we were taught. Washington, D.C. is not only entirely Roman, but that's just the vehicle to go even further back into ancient civilizations, all the way back to Samaria. The symbolism there has not, none of it has anything to do with Christianity. And the Christians in, in America are totally misled about who's, who's been running that and why, and why Washington, D.C. mirrors Rome. Capitol Hill was, was called that because in Rome, the main place was Capitoline Hill, where a similar-looking temple sits to, to what you see up in, in Washington, D.C. It's all over Washington, and the, the Masonic stuff, and all of that goes way back. And they just tie, you know, it's kind of like the, the what the Japanese are doing or generations have been doing. Certain groups, secret groups, are able to manipulate and control things. And the, the rest of the population is just misled about what's going on. Do you think that these obelisks, you know, all the way from Rome, I wonder if it's almost a saying, Every time there's an obelisk, it means there's a position of power of or virility. We have Rome, France, and these were empires at one point. The British Empire has obelisks. We have them in New York. We have them in Washington, D.C. And they're moving west all the time. As you can see in history, power has been moving west. Are we going to start seeing that in China too soon? <laughs> you mean they're putting obelisks up? <laughs> Yeah. I don't. They don't trace their heritage back like we do to Egypt, because all those obelisks in Rome were brought from exactly. Egypt. The the Romans stolen. Didn't make them. They cut them down and brought them. Yeah, they were stolen, which was paying homage really to Egypt. You know, in in this whole historical process. But uh, the one in Washington, though, that was built um, right, and it's Too actually big. that's it's very big, but it's hollow. It's not that heavy. Uh, and it's it's not made out of stone. Yeah, they they were but, been able they would have been able to bring it if we had the technology. I mean, look at Baalbek, look at some of these places around the world that we can't oh. explain. Oh, Baalbek is astonishing. I mean, it's just overwhelming. Even uh, my colleague uh, Graham Hancock had to admit that when he sat there on those uh, one of those giant cyclopean blocks, that he did feel like it just could be alien. And he's a critic of, of uh, ancient alien theory. That's okay. You know, there's, there's, to me, we're addressing mysteries, and there's always going to be mystery, and, and I'm content with it. I, I'm not somebody that has to, I'll still try to explain as much as I can, like you were saying earlier. We have to embrace the, the scientific method and attitude, but there's a point where you draw the line and realize science can't go there. 
it's a limited set of rules that you use. Exactly. It's almost as if you're, you and I start walking and we're trying to escape and there's always a wall in front of us. Well, science tells us, look, there's nowhere else that we need to escape. There's nowhere else. There's a wall right here. Well, I say I need to find the exit. And if I need to dig a hole or jump or go around, I will do that. Even though there's no there's right. no exit, I will continue looking for that exit. And that drive, that energy that we have, that motivation is what they want us to stop. And they call us stupid. Yeah. They call us pseudoscientists. They call, you name it, every name under the sun. But, you know, when you and I speculate, we may have differences of opinion. But I enjoy listening to your opinion. And people enjoy listening to mine because that's how could one person in the future may say, well, guess what? Will Hart, Graham Hancock, Eric Van Daniken, if I join all those dots, maybe I'll get the answer. Now, if you remove them from the equation, we're stuck in square one. That's right. And humanity, I mean, we, we just have a curious nature. We're inquisitive. We're going to keep pushing on. That's what we do as, as a race. Um, I don't think there's any stopping it. You, you really can't stop the human spirit. Um, it will just keep going. And I think in the end, uh, depending on how far we can get, and we can debate that or discuss it, uh, you know, the truth will come out. It will. But uh, things move slowly when you're talking about the collective, you know. I mean, look at how many nations we have now. In a way, we're going backwards. You know, the collective is, and a few individuals are, are just jumping leaps and bounds forward. Well, there's that saying, uh, Margaret Mead, I forgot exactly the same, but it's only a few people who make the real differences in the world. But we, we, That's absolutely we've all true. heard of the term directed panspermia. And if anyone has seen the movie Prometheus, you, you get the idea, folks. Has the scientific community, Will, entertained the idea and considered it a solid scientific theory that life on Earth was seeded from elsewhere, or dare we say, shipped to Earth by an extraterrestrial civilization? Well, that's, you know, Francis Crick was had the credentials that no scientist would uh, try to stand up against. Uh, so they took him seriously, yes. The problem, when he and Leslie Orgel uh, wrote the paper on that theory, and it was 1972, well, we didn't have all this information then that we've gathered, you know, from these various uh, space space missions that have found water on different bodies that have. Now we, we've got the uh, the Kepler, you know, returning Earth-like planets. Well, look at I mean, it's a bonanza and it all supports that theory, because if they had not found water out there or any Earth-like planets, yeah, the theory would start to kind of fade away. But now I think it's going to get a uh, revival because there's just too much data that's coming in that's, that supports the theory. And I'm always thinking of Seth Shostak. You know what I'm talking about here? SETI, Center of Extraterrestrial, I forget exactly. that. They, yeah. Uh, but they're trying to communicate with other beings out there. But I'm wondering if they're millions or billions of years ahead of us. What tells us that right. they have the same type of communication mechanism that we have? Exactly. I, I agree that SETI just doesn't, it doesn't work to me because it it's an, an assumption I don't think we can make, and you just hit on it, that 
why would they use our technology? I mean, we're in a very early stage of this electromagnetism and everything. You know, a, a race that was even 10,000 years ahead that has been in technology for that long. I mean, look at us. A hundred years, years, right. <laughs> you know, 10,000 years. Imagine what they'd be like. They wouldn't be using the kind of systems we do. They wouldn't want to be detected, a lot of them, I'm sure. Because we don't know what's out there entirely, you know. And they would have things masked, camouflaged. Uh, they wouldn't just let everybody, you know, read their signals. It's kind of a... I, I think when scientists do that sort of thing, they're playing games with the public because they already know. These people aren't stupid. It's just like archaeologists. They already know all these uh, these theories that they put out publicly are bogus. They've already gone to that stuff. They're just not making it public. But wait. When the time comes, they will, and people will see. They'll take over and push guys like you and me aside. Are they trying to preserve the status quo, and that's exactly what yeah, they are? They get funded by the bigger, biggest corporations to keep the secret. Because here's the deal. If we're able to find how these things were made, that's probably going to take us to free energy and sound and vibrations and then we can talk about Ed Lee's, Leeds Coleman in Coral Castle in Florida. All these things. I mean, th right. that's why it's so secretive. Right. Tesla, et cetera. Tesla, yes. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Tesla, you know, he was, uh, his, his whole existence was suppressed throughout the early 19th century. Um, well, let's say from the 30s, from the time of his death on, uh, I never heard the name while I was going to school, and that was back in the 50s Me and 60s. Either. I never heard the name Nikola Tesla. It was not breathed anywhere. Well, I didn't learn until the 1980s who he was, 1980. I got a, a biography, and I was astonished, shocked at who he actually was. Well, now that's all come out with the Internet, and thank God for the Internet, because it has brought all this stuff up and made it public. Uh, and he did say, though, he predicted that. People would know over time, future generations would know who he was because he knew what was going to happen to his memory, at least for a while. And uh, right. He said the same thing you just said. You know, it's it's about energy, vibration, frequencies. And that's why his it could have been free energy, but that's not actually what he was going to do. People kind of have that wrong. What do you want to do? It could be. Well, you know, with his tower, yeah, he was going to transmit it, but you had to have a download device, just like with a cell phone, right? Like there's all these towers and everybody has a cell phone, the download device. Well, you were going to have download devices, but it would cover everything. It was even going to cover power, you know, this is box that he was going to have. Well, somebody, some, you know, business uh, financier could have made money off of that. Um, there were other reasons there were other factors that, that suppressed that technology at that time. What we hear is that J.P. Well, two, two people are involved with a lot of these stuff, Edison, but J.P. Morgan allegedly was the one who said, well, since this cannot be metered, we're shutting it down. Yeah, but they could have sold the, the download. True, a meter that way, right? Yeah, they could have. There was another reason, and Tesla alluded to it in his autobiography. He said that... I, I came to realize that this is just not the time. Humanity is not ready for this. Now, they must have discovered some other things about it, you know, that would change society too much. 
because they were already embarked on, on, you know, the AC electricity with wires and everything. They would have had to uproot everything and start all over with again. DC, you know right. what I mean? Yeah, it's like retooling cars, suddenly doing away with automobiles. Why you wipe out a lot of jobs and a lot of the economy while you restructure? Well, I read this article that in the next, not even in the distant, not, not even 10 years down the road, allegedly the plan is to outlaw cars. And it's going to be self-driving vehicles. They're going to make driving illegal. And they're going to have a lot of mass transit. <laughs> now, that, I saw the article. That, that could happen. That could happen. But, I, yeah. you know, with the power structure that we have, I don't see that. That's going to be millions and millions of jobs and billions of dollars. That's right. And people love their cars. Come on. Americans love their cars. The independence it gives them and everything. I can't imagine uh, putting up with that. But you never know. Things things do change very fast. Well, uh, nobody that I remember envisioned cell phones or or home computers back there and in, in when I was in high school. Uh, but here it all is, and in a big way. So I remember back in 1984 when I went to the first World Fair. It was in New Orleans. And what I saw there just perplexed me. I, AT&T had a, a big, big, you know, a place there for, for you to see. And I sat down and I saw a computer, a personal computer, and it was explaining that in the very near future, you won't have to leave your house. You will work, work from home. You'll be able to do all your shopping online. You'll be able to see people. Well, and I was thinking, gosh, that's <laughs> the Jetsons. That's going to be probably, what, 50 years down the road. Well, no, it was 10 years after, 1994, the first time yeah. that I saw the Internet and I saw all this stuff. And look at today. Amazon is taking over. They used to have, I believe, yeah. close to, what, uh, a million Prime subscribers. Now they have 25, and the number is exponential all the time. What's going to happen with the shopping centers? We're at the cusp of a new type of industry in the future. Yeah, Th these things are just going to keep going. And I, I think at some point, if we, I've already done it, but I don't know how many people were. If you create a civilization, right, that, that's all progress, that doesn't look, and this I'm describing America, because America is a very unique culture on the planet. If, if you've lived in other cultures, you know it or spent much time in them. America really has no historical reference. America does not care about history. It pays lip service to it. It's forward-looking, progressive culture, and it's mostly about technology. And it doesn't have a break, though. I mean, we're talking about a machine that really doesn't have a break. It's just going to keep going. It doesn't matter how it changes society or culture or institutions. It just keeps ripping along. Um, that's really kind of scary to try to wrap your mind around. W what the heck are we part of here? I don't understand all these things. You ask me what electricity is. Ask me how you and I can talk, you know, and instantly hear each other. <laughs> hard to explain any of this, but we're living in it. That is true. That is true. You By get, the way, where, where does the word panspermia come from? It's Greek. It just means seeds everywhere, which means uh, a Greek philosopher, Anaxagoras. Anaxagoras? Came up, came, came, yeah, came up with it. Uh, and his idea was that life was all out in the universe everywhere. Um, of course, he couldn't really articulate it, and now we're to the point where maybe through scientific methods we can, to a degree, articulate it. And 
things could get very interesting. Here's the, here's one of the things to me, Mel, that that happened in the last 50 years. From the 60s, especially when we got in the space race and took off with that, I think I thought and I think everybody was thinking this is where all the big stuff is going to come from. You know, all the change and revolutionary things. Well, some came, but in truth, the really revolutionary stuff came in with DNA, with the the genome, and then all of this bioengineering and biotechnology, because that that was not as nearly as hard to do as space travel, which is kind of mind blowing. I mean, you can take and you can manipulate uh, DNA around pretty easily. Well, we talk about directed panspermia, but I'm thinking of undirected panspermia and. For example, if I'm in a civilization that knows that we need to be able to seed another planet because, you know, let's face it, we may not be able to be here for the rest of a thousand years if we keep treating this planet the way we do. But if we say, I know, supposedly, according to NASA, uh, the visible spectrum gives us about 80 billion I believe, what is it, galaxies or, or or stars, one or the other. So there must be trillions of planets. We cannot visit all of them, and we don't know exactly which ones are in the Goldilocks zone that could be habitable. So how do we seed all that in a very effective way? Well, what I would do would be sending millions of little probes to crash into every single one of them and let life appear right. wherever. Would that be under, yeah, automated? Under, yeah, probe. Un, would that be undirected panspermia? Yeah, that's just plain panspermia. And there is, you know, there are. Uh, it's pretty well developed that theory. Uh, yeah, but one is directed. By an Indian. I'm suggesting undirected. Is this undirected panspermia? Undirected, yeah, would would just be you know carried on uh, meteorite, you know, comet, uh, yeah, meteorites and so on. Right, and we do find the building blocks of life on. Not life itself exactly, but the building blocks are there. The raw materials are already on uh, comets and asteroids and all these things. Um, so that's that's just it, you know there are different there are different shades of these theories on how strong you want you know intelligence to be involved. Was was there a race like ours? Uh, and it, to me, it looks like it. I mean, Crick's arguments were uh, compelling. Very compelling. Well, we have to take it. I'm here. We have to take our one and only break. Okay. But when we come back, we have okay. a lot to discuss, especially some of the most important cases. I also want to ask you this and, and hear your answer on the other side. Why do you think so many scientists dismiss histories handed down by our ancestors as being nothing more than a mere myth, apparently spun by ignorant, childish minds that have no intrinsic value or relevancy to scientific investigation. We'd like to discuss that when we come back and so much more. How can people buy the book Ancient Alien Ancestors and your other one, Genesis Race? Well, they're on, they're on Amazon. You can either go uh, search on Amazon, Will Hart, and it'll pull up my books, or Ancient uh, Alien Ancestors will take you to it. And then they have all my books right there uh, grouped together. And you have a website too, don't you? Yeah, I have. Uh, I have a website, and uh, I just put up a page. If they go to uh, a Facebook page, Will Hart, it's just you know Facebook.com Will Hart author. They'll get to uh, my Facebook, 
And I will go ahead and put links to my websites on that. Excellent. We have uh, links on our website as well. I, I do a lot. Of, I do put up a lot of posts every day. Great. We have links on our website in case anybody wonders. So, folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with Bill Hart, directly from Mexico, discussing ancient alien ancestors. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you.